John chapter 20, verses 24, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, verse 31. Hear God's word. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Praise be to God. Well, I think there are some people who can name the seven dwarves better than they can name all 12 apostles. Uh, but still, there are a couple apostles that um, have uh, reached critical acclaim and, and well-known you know, name status. And, and one of them is Thomas, because Thomas is known by the moniker of Doubting Thomas. Now, here's the backstory: Jesus is risen the week before. He shows up to the disciples on the day in which he is risen. They're hiding because they're, they're scared. And he shows up to them. He shows them in that account his hands and his side. He specifically shows them the wounds. He says, peace be with you. All right. And they go, oh my, Jesus is risen. But who isn't there? Thomas isn't there. And so during the week, they tell Thomas. Actually, the language is such that he, they, they told him over and over again. They kept telling him, Thomas, we really did see him. All right, but what does he say? I won't believe it. A little bit about Thomas. Thomas is known for being kind of a cynic. Uh, there's this great passage, the, even from the account we gave last week about uh, at Lazarus' death and Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Early on in John chapter 11, when they're going to Bethany, uh, uh, t- they, had, they had recently left Jerusalem in the Bethany area because of a threat against Jesus' life. And so when Thomas finds out they're going back, he says, great guys, let's go die with him, which is a great kind of pessimistic, cynical approach to following Jesus. And that's how some of you follow Jesus with that kind of ironic, dry sense of humor. And this was Thomas, and his nickname was the twin, or his, his Greek name is, or is Didymus. You know, it's interesting to go by the twin. It keeps telling us that in the gospel accounts. Some early speculation, Christian speculation, is that he was actually called this not because he had a twin brother, but because he was a dead ringer for Jesus. Not really sure, it's speculation. But anyways, he was one of, the, one of the 12 apostles. In other words, what that means is he had been with Jesus for three years. That means he had seen it all and he had heard it all. He had seen that Jesus is no fraud. He had seen Jesus heal people. He had heard Jesus' teaching. He had spent time with Jesus day in and day out. But not only that, but Thomas himself had been a recipient of the same blessings. He had been sent out like the other 12 to share the gospel in the countryside. That from their hand, people had been healed 
of demon possession, and of sicknesses. He had participated in miracles. And not that long before, he had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet Thomas still says, I will never, I will never believe. Now understand that that language there is stronger than mere doubt. That is not, that is not a doubt. Well, I'm not sure if Jesus could have done that. I, I, you know, no, this is never. Even someone who had done what he had done, saw what he saw, and heard what he had heard, does not believe what he hears about the resurrection. And there's almost a comfort for that, for those of us in the 21st century, to go, look at that. Even those first couple weeks, we find someone who found the resurrection hard to swallow and accept. Hard to swallow and accept, because it can be difficult for us. And the question is, why doesn't he believe, though, even after seeing all of these things? Well, skepticism certainly has a role here. The claim that a dead person rose is indeed a tough proposition to get your mind around. Because if you're like me, you've never seen a dead person risen from the dead. We say risen indeed, though, when we come to worship on Easter Sunday. But most of us actually, if we're in our heart of hearts, if we're honest, we actually go, He is risen, we think. We is risen. I hope. But it may be more than that. It may not simply be just pure intellectual skepticism. There are others who look at Thomas and they wonder if there was emotional and more existential reasons for Thomas than merely intellectual skepticism. If there was actually, they take a psychological approach of evaluating Thomas. When he hear the words, I will never believe, is the sound of anger and disappointment and grief. And it's speculating that the pain of losing Jesus, of watching this man that he thought was the Messiah die on a cross was so startling and so shocking and so brutal that Thomas has now enthroned his pain and his disappointment. You know what I mean by enthroning your pain? Some of you have been living in that. That you have experienced some sort of, in our day, we call it trauma, whether it be little T traumas or big T traumas, that your pain is now enthroned and your pain is now your worldview. And all other evidence must answer to your pain. And it is understandable because that's so much the reason why I think so many of us actually begin to have intellectual issues with the, the scriptures, is that there is some pain that is brought into our life, some disappointment with God and what he's allowed, with sin and suffering and pain in your life, and from that, it begins to, to develop a seed of doubt that in begins to take on an intellectual approach, a skepticism. But is that where where we, Thomas is left in the story. No, by the very end of this passage, of merely short five verses, it ends with the most profound profession of faith we find in all the Gospels. In fact, it is the proclamation, it is the clearest proclamation of deity to, about Jesus that we have in the Gospels. He says this, my Lord, Yahweh, my God. In fact, the story of Thomas is the climax of the entire Gospel story of John. Now you may be thinking, wait a second, I know my Bible. There's John chapter 21. Yes, John chapter 21 is an appendix, though. You know at the end of a movie where there's the final scene and things close, and then there will be like that paragraph that tells kind of some, some information about how they lived, or they got married and they had nine children and 19 dogs, or some, some information that brings it to some loose ends to a close in writing. That's John 21. But here at the end of John 20 is the closing scene 
from a literary approach, that this is the end. And so we see this in verses 30 and 31, that G, he says this, I could have written about many other things in this book. He's clearly bringing it to a conclusion, but I have told you these things so that you might believe. And believe what? Well, this harkens back to the very beginning. How does John chapter 1 begin? Of all the Gospels, John is most clear about bringing about a propositional faith right into your face. How does John 1 begin? Very famously, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here, what do we see at the very end in the last scene of John? A man declaring with greater clarity... A man who has gone from skepticism and unbelief now believes and makes the clearest declaration of the very thing that John says from the very word go in the book, that this is what I want you to know, that Jesus is God and he has been there from the beginning. Now, what would turn such unbelief into belief? A couple weeks ago, we looked at what would turn mourning into mission. This week, we look at what would turn unbelief into belief. And as has been our pattern through this whole series, it's an encounter with the risen Jesus. That's what turn him. That's what turns you from unbelief to belief. And when you encounter the risen Jesus, there are two aspects that you discover from Jesus and you hear from Jesus that turns unbelief to belief. And here's what they are. Here's the first one. The first one is evidence. Can you remember that? I, last couple of weeks I've had some long form points. This week, one word. Evidence. Evidence. Jesus shows up And he is physically present. Thomas can see him. He can touch him. He can hear him. This is sensory evidence. Why does Thomas go from unbelief to belief? Because he sees that the resurrection is true. He sees the facts. Modern people would say, this is ridiculous. Death and taxes. Dead people don't rise from the dead. I don't buy it. So why does Thomas buy it? Because of the evidence. The women on the day in which Jesus actually rose from the dead, the disciples are in hiding and the women go to the grave. Do they go to the grave because they expect to see a risen Jesus? No, they go with spices because they're going to embalm a dead Jesus. And why not? Because they didn't expect him to be raised from the dead. And yet they believe. Why? Because they saw all the evidence. The church, understand this, the church stands or falls on the resurrection. It stands or falls on this. And Jesus is not asking us to believe with a blind faith. He confronts history, not so much with his claims of teaching, but with himself as the primary evidence, specifically his resurrected self. In other words, he shows up and says, you need evidence? I'm right here, baby. Jesus in his resurrected self, understand this, there's a vulnerability here to our religion, to our faith claims. Because Jesus, he he rests our faith on his resurrection and himself such that he comes into history and therefore our faith can be verified or falsified based on the truth of the evidence. What does the evidence say? Now in the science of historical study, you take all the historical evidence available and you determine as best you can what took place based on the historical evidence. And so what does history tell us? Let's just take just a moment on this. What is the consensus among historians on this? First, here's one. Very, we're going to go through this quickly. First, Rome crucified 
and buried a popular Jewish figure named Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? Historians, it's consensus that he existed and he was crucified. Second, a few days later, his tomb was discovered to be empty. He wasn't there anymore. He was gone. The body never showed up, never revealed or showed a corpse. Third, on multiple occasions... And in many different circumstances, individual people and then groups of people had post-mortem, that means post-death, post-mortem encounters with Jesus. Jesus actually says in, in Paul's works that Jesus appeared to 500 people. And many of their names are actually mentioned in the Bibles. Now, why, are there, why is their name mentioned in the Bible? Because they're still alive. And Paul and the gospel writers are saying, if you want to ask them if they saw what they saw, go ask them. They're there. They'll tell you. All right? Did you really see this? For example, we may have a few church members. I won't mention them by name. I know who they are. Some of our church members are at Talladega this morning. Some of them might be related to me. They're at Talladega. And so let me give you a, a, a little, a, a enormous moment from NASCAR history. The day Daryl Earnhardt died. Now, how do you know Dale Earnhardt died? Because you could drive up to the Cracker Barrel in Bremen right now, and you can walk in, and you can say, who here believes that Dale Earnhardt died? And you'd have about 400 people stand up and go, I saw him. I saw the car crash. I know he died. Fourth, that was, why was that so funny? Um, <laughs> it's the Cracker Barrel thing. That's the image, isn't it? Out of nowhere, out against all odds, arose history's most significant movement. Not based on teaching and revelation, but based upon an event. This event. Within 300 or so years in the face of profound persecution, not because they had power, since power is so popular to talk about, Christianity becomes the dominant religious movement of the Roman Empire. It spreads to the entire known world, from India to Spain, from Africa to the northern coasts of Europe. It spreads like wildfire. All while Christians are being, uh-oh, that's not good. All while Christians are being persecuted across the globe. And so these are the historical facts that scholars, Christian and unchristian, liberal and conservative, can agree upon. Now, I think most people just assume that the resurrection is simply religious folklore passed down through the centuries, but it's actually a well-documented, verifiable, and evidence-supported event from the ancient world. Now, this evidence places the skeptic and the unbeliever in an awkward place where you have to try to get around the evidence. And provide another explanation. And there's many other kind of ways in which two people get around this. And they try to provide alternative explanations. And Christians have answered those explanations with quite reasonable answers. And I'm not going to go into those. You'll have to do that yourself. The problem for many is that we are, take, we are talking about a resurrection. And, and that is difficult. And for some, opening ourselves up to the supernatural for an explanation is simply asking too much. Because our view of the world is that we live in a natural world and it's a closed system. And we do not believe that anything breaks in. N.T. Wright, he is the most prominent living scholar on the resurrection today. He tells the story of, a, of an Oxford colleague who had, 
who had read and reviewed N.T. Wright's book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Now, this Oxford colleague was an unbelieving and skeptical scholar, and he admits to N.T. Wright that N.T. Wright's scholarship was brilliant, that his argumentation was solid, and historically speaking, his work was overwhelmingly compelling. But he said this, no matter what the evidence suggests, dead people don't come back to life. And to, to which Tom Wright responded, that's fine, my friends, just as long as you are willing to admit that you are the one denying the evidence in favor of your own blind belief. In other words, the evidence of the resurrection is so historically overwhelming that it turns the skeptic into a believer of a different kind. Skepticism becomes its own form of faith. Faith that transcendence is simply impossible. Faith that requires us to deny the evidence of history's greatest miracle in order to maintain our faith commitment that miracles can't happen. And that is your faith. That miracles can't happen and that there is nothing transcendent beyond what you can see and feel and touch. And we are right, we are right, we are right when someone comes to us and say, he rose from the dead to go, I'm going to need some evidence. And we know we're right. How do we know that that's okay? Because that's what the gospels are there for. John says it, and I have told you these things so that you might believe. I have given you the evidence. And so if I could say two things to two different groups of people. Are you willing, will our response when the evidence, when, the, when, when you require some extraordinary claim of the evidence, when the evidence is provided, are you willing to receive the evidence demand of you? The demand to believe. So for those of you that do not believe, here's my, here's my call. Here's the application and the implication. Look at the evidence. I can't go into very much of it. I gave a little bit of it this morning. N.T. Wright's book is 800 pages long. There's another one called by another historian called Balkum, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, about three or 400 pages long. There's much evidence out there. Would you, so here's my question. Would you be willing to investigate the claims of Christianity around this topic? Second, to those of you who are already believers, to you I say this, look to the evidence. The same application. And grow in your assurance. The evidence, we have a reasonable faith. A reasonable faith. There are reasonable reasons to believe. And one of my favorite definitions of faith is faith equals the unexplained and unexplainable meeting up with the undeniable. In other words, hey, from a scientific naturalist perspective, I don't know how to explain the resurrection. But the historical facts to me are undeniable. And so would you look and research and study? It would actually be good for your soul. You will actually grow in your assurance, not, not less, but more. As Christians, our job is not to put our fingers in our ears and our head in the sand and go, la, 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 in the hopes of never having to engage with, engage with any intellectual argumentation. But do the labor. It is a spiritual and an intellectual labor. One Christian pastor in our denomination was recover, recuperating from, from treatments for cancer, and so he suddenly found himself having a, um, a, a lot more time than he'd had for a, a many, many years. And so he, um, he physically, he, went to, he couldn't do much physically, 
And so he picked up N.T. Wright's this, this book, this 800-page tome. I have this book. I've read a few pages of it. And so you'd ask, why do you have an 800-page book that you've only read a few pages of it? And the answer is because it looks good on my shelf. And it makes me look smart. Well, this pastor picked it up. And there, while he was sick, he began meditating. He read every single page. Everything. The footnotes and everything. And he said this, that when I closed the cover, I'll never forget, after spending two weeks reading and thinking about it, I wept because I realized I had believed in a resurrection now in a way I had never believed before. Of course, I had believed in the resurrection before. I had actually staked my life and my career on it, and of course, I had the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus constantly at the front of my imagination. But what surprised me was the way this marshalling of evidence took my faith up a few notches. Before I believed... But now I believed even more. The church stands or falls on the teaching of this, of the, not on the teaching of the ethical stances of Christianity, but it rises and falls on the claims of Jesus, that he has risen from the dead. So as much as the evidence supports Christianity, I encourage you to look at it. Very brilliant people come to know Jesus through examining the evidence, but I actually don't think that that's what's gonna, that gets what gets the heart of it for most from this account. What I think ultimately changes Thomas and what changes you and I, give you evidence on the first one. Here's your second word, keeping it really brief this morning. Quite simple, since we're dealing with some higher level apologetic topics. Evidence one, second word, love. Love. And I I say silly, I feel silly just saying that, but we'll go with that. There is something profoundly personal about Thomas's declaration here. He doesn't say, yep, okay, you guys are right. Jesus rose from the dead. You're right. He doesn't pull out a creedal statement and say, I believe that on the third day Jesus rose from the dead, and this is evidence enough to me that Jesus is the Lord and he is God. No, what does Thomas say? He says, my Lord and my God. We need the evidence, but at an even deeper level, we need the love of God to address the emotional power and energy that rests behind our skepticism, which is usually our pain. Our suffering, our loss, and our hope, and our hopelessness, and our loneliness, and our suffering has to be confronted by the presence of a loving God. You see, there is a deep hunger inside of us that has been there from creation. And it has remained in some form or another since the fall. At the core of our divided beings, we have a deep ambivalence. That's a big word. Ambivalence means mixed, mixed feelings. That we are deeply ambivalent towards God. And which we long for him, we desire him, we need him more than anything else, and yet we run from him. We both long for God and we run for him. And therefore, what must move us from unbelief to personal trust is an experience of the love of God that draws us to himself. And so how does Thomas experience Christ's love in this passage? In two ways in particular. First is that Thomas experienced the love of Jesus and Jesus' pursuit of him. When does Thomas get slammed by the love of God? When he sees that Jesus pursues him. Thomas has told the other disciples, I won't believe you unless I see his hands and I can touch his side. And verses, that's in verse 25. And then verse 27, if you look at the wording, Jesus shows up and goes, you want to see my hands? They're right here. Thomas, I hear you want to touch my side. It's right here. He hears and he pursues Thomas. And understand this, Jesus could have said, Thomas, everybody else from here on out, 
has to simply take the claims of the eyewitnesses and they have to believe. He actually says that to them. Better it is for those who have not seen and believe. But there's something deeply personal about Jesus' appearance here. He comes and does the same thing he did for the other disciples the week before. And he comes and says, Thomas, I am here for you. See my hands. Peace be upon you. You see, this is what Jesus came to do. He came to seek and save the lost. Even the lost have the outer veneer of a skeptic. And to find out that there is a God who is looking for you and seeking you and pursuing you, that will take you from unbelief to belief. We run away, but he comes after us. Consider the humility of such a love of a God who would do this. To pursue one who runs away time and time and time again. I, I, I don't understand it. I keep giving Marvel uh, illustrations, but we're going to go for another one this week for like three weeks in a row. I promise we'll take a break next week, mostly because I'm not the one preaching. All right, so, all right. There, there's one particular scene where Captain Marvel and in the movie, she's depicted as a female, and she's, she's kind of doing this, it's like this battle, this training exercise with this very powerful person. And you find out after the, the effects that the movie opens up in this serious and significant battle. And, and, and then it, you find out, oh, they're just training. Well, at the very end, that same person she had been a battle in has now been exposed to be her mortal enemy. And she is in a battle with this person. And he looks at her and says, prove to me that you can actually beat me. And she drops, kicks him about 100 yards, slams him into a rock. And she says to him, I don't have to prove anything to you. Now, here's what I want you to say. The whole reason why I give it to you is this. Jesus, there's no one in history who has more of a right to say that than Jesus to the apostles. You have seen me raise people from the dead for crying out loud. You have seen me heal people. I have done all of these things in your presence and yet, you see the humility of Jesus going, one more time, I will stoop. And that, he, that Thomas comes with this arrogance and this audacity that every other place in the Bible, hey, when Gideon asks for a sign in the Old Testament, what does God do? You know, that's really unfaithful, but I'm going to give you one anyways. That is the graciousness of God in the face of our skepticism and our doubts that he would be so humble. Here's what C.S. Lewis said when he wrote about his own conversion. He said this, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene. That's the, kind of the college at Oxford he taught at. Night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I had so earnestly desired not to meet. Sorry, this was going to be on the, we're having technical difficulties. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. The divine humility which will accept a convert on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own two feet, but who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in, kicking, screaming, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? And yet Jesus, with Thomas going, I will never believe, says, let me show you my hands. Let me come to you and pursue you one more time. And Lewis is saying, I didn't even want to be a Christian. I didn't want any part of this. 
Think of the humility of God that would take a convert on, on such terms. I mean, think if you, you, you married someone like that. You know, I don't really want to marry you. I really don't actually want you in my life at all. But eHarmony or Match.com has said that we're, our, our evidential algorithm is really going to fit us together really well, so I'll show up and marry you. Would you take somebody and marrying them on those terms? No, no way. But the pursuing relentless love of Jesus says yes way. Yes way. The other way we see his love is not just his pursuit, but his wounds. Who has ever heard of a God who is speared and who is gored and who bleeds and who suffers? God is willing to taste poverty and hunger and thirst and pain and to do it all in the face of rejection and betrayal and doubt. And in seeing Jesus' wounds, Thomas saw what it cost Jesus to love him. And ultimately what changes your life is an experience of God's love. The presence of his love manifested to your life and a recognition of what he has done for you and was willing to do for you. And Thomas melts under the love of God. You, you are the recipient of the love of God. Little Elizabeth Ann gets to be told from the earliest days, you're a recipient of the love of God. Heard the story of a man who lost his wife. And she, um, she left her husband with three kids, and it, it happened in, in somewhat profound circumstances. She was pregnant with her third child when they discovered that she had, had, can- she had cancer. And the doctor said this to her, Now, we think we can beat this cancer. But if we do everything that we're going to have to do to beat this cancer, the baby inside of you will die. Your choice. The baby or you, and what does she choose? Well, you know what she chooses. So they keep her alive long enough and virtually, not days, not just hours, but she gives a birth. Within giving birth, this woman passes from this life to the next. And that little girl may not have had her mother. She may never know her face. But she will grow up her whole life knowing what? Your mama chose you. She gave her life for you. And it changes your life when you put your head on your pillow every night and you hear the voice of God through his spirit going, you are mine. I chose you. I chose you. And hear the wounds of Christ challenge the lies of our suffering that say that God must not love us. The wounds of Christ answers our cries and our pain by entering in our suffering with us to do something about our pain. There is no God like our God. I don't read much poetry, but I'm going to read some to you this this morning. I'm sorry. I'll try to read it slow. Oh, crud, it's not going to be on the screen. Oh, Good job. <laughs> William Temple, he was the Archbishop of uh, Canterbury in England during World War II, and he wrote a, a significant commentary on the Gospel of John, and he came to this passage. He was actually writing at a time, he, he published it in 1939, so in the years leading up to World War II, but he was writing it to a, to a, to a generation that had lived through World War I and the horrors of World War I, and now they were facing down a new enemy. And he came to this passage and he was reflecting on Jesus' scars and wounds, and he inserted in his commentary a poem by Edward Shalito entitled, Jesus of the Scars, and here's what that says. 
If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. Verse 2. The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us, where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. If, when the doors are shut, love the image, when the doors are shut, like John 20. If, when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are, have no fear. Show us thy scars, they are your signature. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. Thou rode, they rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Jesus, do you love Thomas? Jesus, do you love Cade and Callie and Ryan? Jesus says, yep, I sure do. And we say, we need evidence. Put it in writing, Jesus. So he writes, I love Cade. And you're like, Jesus, you didn't sign it. Sign it. And he looks up and says, here's my signature. This is the sign of my love to you. Let me ask you, have you encountered the love of Jesus? The one who would die and be raised for you. Frederick Buechner said this, nearly 2,000 years 2,000 Easter's have taken place since Thomas' day. 2,000 years of people claiming the tomb was empty and Christ alive, but it is not enough for us. If we are to believe that it really happened, if we are to believe in such a way that it affects our lives, the only way any of us believes we must somehow today see Jesus for ourselves. Today as it was then, it is not the absence from the tomb that convinces the heart, but it's the presence of Jesus invading empty lives. So let me ask you, has he invaded yours? Have you encountered the living and risen Christ? So I ask, why does John conclude his book? Why is this the climax of his book? Because resurrection does not mean simply that Jesus is true, but that everything that Jesus offers in his scars is true. It means that the cross all that he promises in the cross is true. If he doesn't rise, then you're not forgiven. If he doesn't rise, there is no new heavens and no new earth. I'm not just asking you to open yourself up to the plausibility of Easter, but to the plausibility that everything that you long to be true about the gospel is true in the end. That there really is forgiveness for sinners. That not condemnation is the, that forgiveness, not condemnation is the final word. It means healing, not brokenness. It means justice, not injustice. It means peace, not violence. It means eternal life and everlasting joy, not a nihilistic, hopeless grave. These are the ultimate words over your story. And the scars are proof. There is something inside of us all that longs for these things to be true. It's just 17 out of the 20. Highest grossing movies of all time are fantasy and mythologies. Transcendent battles of triumphs between good and evil. 
because we can't shake our longing and our sense that there is something else out there besides what we can taste, feel, and touch. If Easter is true, then you are not just longing for a transcendent story. I have news for you. You're in one. You're in one. And not someday in heaven. It's invaded. That means you're in one now. And that transcendent story is moved beyond simply the natural world where everything ends in death and failure. Think about how ridiculous this world would be and how ridiculous all of this would be if, there, if, if everything just, at the end of the story of your life and the end of the natural world is death, period, done. It's all foolishness. I and mean, it's a bad joke if your life takes this trajectory and it ends with you dead. You're pink and you're cuddly when you're born. And sometimes you're cute. And then you get nourishment and strength and you come to one of those cute fat little kids with rolls. And you run around like at the Easter egg hunt from a couple weeks ago and you're like, you're toppling over like trying to pick up an egg and everyone's like, oh, you're so stinking cute. I just want to pinch you. That was your life. And then you grow up and you get a little bit stronger. Then you hit middle school. I skip that part though. Things get a little bit rough. And then you get to high school and college and you're stronger and you're full of energy and you're beautiful and your brain has the ability to discover so much. And you find, you find someone to do life with. And you love each other and you have a kid. And you go on vacation together. And you raise a family together. And then, and then you get sometime in your 40s. Let's say 45. And at 45, you're at the top of the mountain and then you begin to have a sense that you're crusting a hill. And you think, well, this isn't so bad, at least at first. But then it begins to pick up speed on the back end. And pretty soon, none of your joints work, and you can't hear. And why can't you hear? Because if you're like me, there's ear hair growing at such dense levels. Of course you can't hear. And so your ear hair clogs your hearing, but while your ear hair is growing at unbelievable rates like poana grass in spring, meanwhile the hair on the top of your head is receding like the shoreline of California. And so eventually your stuff just doesn't work well, and then your friends start dying and your mind slowly leaves you, and then you're in a nursing home with all of its disgusting and pungent spells, and then you die. Is that the trajectory of the whole thing? That's what the natural world says. No, that is not the trajectory. Jesus is the first fruits of a great harvest. And the statement that there is a transcendent story, and for everyone who belongs to Jesus, your sorrows and your physical sufferings are merely a small chapter and a long story that death is actually the true turning point that actually it begins to go up from there. It just gets better and better every day on this, that side of eternity. And you know what we call a transcendent story that echoes upward into eternal joy and glory? You know what we call that? Life. Life in Jesus Christ. John chapter 31, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. In his name. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, um, I've made some bold claims, mostly just kind of repeating you. And Lord, I, um, I'm writing checks that I can't cash. 
and I'm going to need you to cash them for me. So, Spirit of the living God, I pray that you would come and make the risen Christ present in the lives of individuals here this morning. Whether it's in their seat right now, or it's in picking up God's word and hearing from the eyewitnesses there, or maybe even having to go further and reading 800-page tomes on the resurrection, but Lord, would you come and be present and show yourself? And invade the lives of the skeptics who have a deep hurt and who long to know. Who long to know, is there a God and does he pursue me? And if he finds me, does he love me? And would they find that your answer is yes? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.